Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey guys, and welcome to Moms and Murder, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm, I've had better days, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for asking. I'm currently <laughs> recording this while wearing a chicken suit and an icy hot bandage on the back of my neck, so that's how my day is going. <laughs> wow. If that's not a clear picture, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Seems about right. So we're recording from different places today. So hopefully there's no difference in your audio quality. Shouldn't be. Um, but we're doing that this week. And this is like our emergency way to go. We're trying it out for emergencies. So we're here for you. We'll do this. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get started, uh, one quick announcement. Um, turns out the movie The Romeo Killer from last week did get released by Lifetime. So that was totally my bad. And if you've written me, thank you. And if you continue to write me, thank you a little bit less, because now I do know (laughs) (laughs) that it came out and I really, really want to see it. So thank you, guys. I always appreciate or we always appreciate you letting us know when we do get something wrong. But I heard from a lot of you. So I really offended some people this past week. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. You are not up with your Lifetime movies. I was very ashamed of myself. And now I really want to just go watch it. So. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) This week, we're going to be talking about the suspicious death of a young mother from St. Augustine, Florida, named Michelle O'Connell. The case sparked intense debate over how police handle cases of possible domestic violence within their own ranks, and it has become one of my personal pet cases. Um, Some people have those cases where they just obsess over them. And this is one of the ones uh, uh, for me that I have always kind of been really interested in. Um, It's just one of those stories that kind of keeps you up at night thinking about the little details and what really happened. And um, I really am fascinated by the story. And I'm really excited to share the story on our podcast this week. This is another one that there's really not a lot of room for levity for. And the details of the story Um, Some listeners might find them triggering or um, offensive, so just be aware of that if you want to continue listening. And if not, we will not know if you shut it off right now. No, we get your download. Sorry, suckas. (laughs) (laughs) So before we talk about Michelle and what happened to her, we are going to tell you a little bit about St. Augustine, Florida in this week's segment of We Googled This City. So, And I hope hope you Googled the city. Yeah. (laughs) It's did you, you did, and now it's I hope. (laughs) So (laughs) I did, in fact, Google this city. So St. Augustine is in Florida, and it's known as the first city in the U.S. And I know there are people in Pensacola that want to come for me right now, but once you change the history books, I may consider changing my attitude about this. Um, It was founded by the Spanish in 1565. So Pensacola, come at us. I know you want to tell us that we're wrong on this. Show me the facts. 
Uh, number two, <laughs> I don't mean for that to sound quite as spicy as it came out. <laughs> this is my only chance to bring humor in this whole stinking story. Let me have this. So <laughs> as of 2010, there were nearly 13,000 people in St. Augustine that made St. Augustine home, which actually seems like a really low number to me. And I feel like I say this every week, but St. Augustine being from Florida is a place like you go visit for um, like school field trips and, you know, day trips and stuff. And I just assume there were way more people living there. That would be incorrect. Uh, the third fact about St. Augustine is that it has the narrowest street in the United States. That street is called the Treasury Street, and it's just seven feet wide. This street actually connects the Royal Spanish Treasury to the area where ships used to dock on the bay. And it was made really, really narrow so that if thieves were trying to escape with chests of gold, there just wasn't enough room in the streets. So there was just this little tiny area and they couldn't get through. And I thought that was super smart. Number four, Potter's Wax Museum is the oldest wax museum in the U.S. and houses more than 160 wax sculptures of famous politicians and people from history, as well as modern movie stars, entertainers, and other celebrities. We will have to post the one I saw of Princess Diana. Mandy, I think I sent you that one. It was very offensive, to say the least. It was the worst thing I've ever seen of Princess Diana. While I'm sure the rest of the wax museum is wonderful, this really hurt me and it wasn't good. I have too much respect for the royal family for that kind of shenanigans. <laughs> so lastly, Tom Petty and Ray Charles both called St. Augustine home. Some say that I should have had better facts for this segment, but just know that you can all hit the road, Jack, and also I won't back down. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I couldn't help myself, Mandy. I just I have to give that one to you. That was pretty good. Right? <laughs> I was like Googling their songs to be like, how can I put their songs in here? And I did it. I did it poorly, but I did it. You did a great job. <laughs> so getting right to the story, Michelle O'Connell was born on October 6, 1985 to her mother, Patty O'Connell. She was the youngest of six children and already had three brothers and two sisters that would become her lifelong friends. The O'Connells had very close relationships with each other, but when Michelle reached her teenage years, she began to struggle with anger issues and depression. Once she began taking medication, her mood improved and she returned to being her outgoing and fun-loving self. She had a zest for life, and when she became a mother at the age of 20, she had everything she ever wanted. Her daughter, Alexis, became her primary concern, and she worked hard, sometimes working two or three jobs to support her little girl. Members of Michelle's family worked for the St. John's County Sheriff's Department. Her mother, Patty, worked as a file clerk, and one of her brothers, Scott O'Connell, was a deputy with the department, which is how Michelle eventually came to be introduced to her boyfriend, Deputy Jeremy Banks. A short time later, Michelle was given a promotion at the child care center she had been working at. The promotion included full-time hours with benefits, which meant health insurance for her daughter. She was elated over her new role, and it seemed that she had it all, but her life came to an abrupt end on September 2, 2010. At 11.25 p.m. that night, officers responded to a frantic 911 call made by Michelle's boyfriend, Deputy Banks, in which he anxiously begged for help because his girlfriend had just shot herself inside of his home. When the call went out, many of Jeremy's friends and co-workers rushed right over. One of them was Deputy Deborah Maynard, who uh, we watched a documentary, which we'll link on this, but in this documentary, um, she had described the adrenaline rush that officers get when they find out that there's been a shooting, and especially when it's possibly involving one of their own men, another officer. Uh, so 
because it was another officer who had made this call, there was other officers, friends, family, um, off-duty deputies. They were all just rushing to the scene to console Jeremy for this terrible tragedy that had just occurred. Inside the master bedroom, officers and paramedics found Michelle O'Connell barely clinging to life after what appeared to be a self-inflicted gunshot to the mouth. Next to her left hand was Jeremy's service pistol. The tack light was on and Jeremy's duty belt and holster were laying on the floor next to the gun. Michelle had a small cut over her right eye and one of her pockets was full of prescription pills and her other pocket contained her cell phone. There was also a second gunshot in the carpet next to Michelle's body. As officers looked around the house, they found Michelle's purse on the kitchen counter. Inside were two empty prescription bottles that belonged to Jeremy. It was assumed early on that Michelle had intended on taking the pills to overdose, but then decided that using a gun would be a quicker method. Um, I have questions about making that assumption, um, especially in this scenario. And nobody ever really kind of talks about this when you hear about the story. But I always wondered why nobody um, questioned, um, like, whether she could have been trying to hide the pills from Jeremy. They were his. They found the bottles. Um, They were empty and they were in her purse. And then she had all the pills in her pockets. But... I don't know why the immediate jump was to, um, oh, she was probably going to take these herself. And there was never really any other, nothing else was, no other, you know, possibility was ever explored with that. And that kind of happens a lot in this case, I feel like, with some of the evidence. So because Michelle still had a pulse when paramedics arrived, they began to perform um, aggressive life support. And this was um, reported to have started at 1130 p.m. that night. Sadly, they were unable to save her, and she was pronounced dead at the scene at 11.48 p.m. Jeremy, who had very obviously been drinking alcohol and was really not what I would consider sober, huddled outside with his family and friends for two hours before he was finally given an interview. And when he was interviewed, it was done in the back of a cop car at the scene. Uh, So really just right outside of his house, still pretty much in his driveway. He told his partners that he had been in his garage sitting on his motorcycle when he heard the familiar sound of a gunshot from inside the house, where he told them that Michelle was in the bedroom packing her things to leave after breaking off their relationship. He stated that when he heard the shot fired, he ran inside calling out to Michelle. And he said that the bedroom door, the master bedroom door was locked when he got inside. And after he heard a second gunshot from inside the room, he kicked the door down and found Michelle lying on the floor. And he says that he immediately dialed 911 at that point. The consensus among everyone at the scene was that Michelle had taken her own life. And less than four hours later, police were already notifying her family as such. The idea that anything else had occurred was never investigated. Michelle's autopsy report showed that she had alcohol in her system, but no other drugs. The fatal shot had severed her spinal cord, and it was determined that the cut and bruise above her right eye were a result of the ejected bullet casing. There was gun residue found on her left hand, and her manner of death was ruled a suicide. The department was ready to declare it a closed case, but Michelle's family and friends could not shake the thought that Michelle had actually been murdered by Deputy Banks following an argument over the breakup that Jeremy himself told officers about in his initial interview. There were many red flags in the case, but detectives felt that all of these strange parts had plausible explanations and they were never considered further. But not everyone who knew Jeremy was so sure that Michelle had done this to herself. Sergeant Scott Beaver said the second gunshot on the floor felt weird to him and made him think that things didn't add up. And he thought that the scene looked bad for Jeremy. I remember them saying that in this documentary, which was so well done and really, really, really good. good. Yeah. Um, That that was like the wording that he said that, man, this really does not look good for Jeremy. But he did not investigate this further to find out why things were the way that they were. 
Another detective, Mike Plott, said that Jeremy's story about how Michelle had used his service weapon didn't seem to be too likely because the type of retention holster used by law enforcement would have made it hard for Michelle to access the gun as most people do not know how to work a retention holster. And I know we go into that more later, but man, (laughs) like they're not kidding about that. The same officer had also witnessed Jeremy's bad temper firsthand and knew him to get belligerent when he was drinking. Michelle's family was never interviewed immediately following her death. The neighborhood was never canvassed. Potential evidence from the scene, including the gun, were never analyzed. To Michelle's family, it simply made no sense why the 24-year-old devoted mother who had just gotten a great job promotion would end her life, leaving her young daughter behind. There were many questions surrounding the night of Michelle's death. According to pictures taken earlier in the evening, Michelle was happy and smiling as she attended a concert with two of her brothers, a few friends, and with Jeremy. Earlier that day, she had gone to lunch with her sister where they chatted about the state of her relationship with Jeremy. Michelle expressed that things had gotten pretty bad and that she had finally decided to leave Jeremy. This was no surprise to her sister, who had already been made aware of previous instances of violence committed on Michelle by Jeremy. Michelle's mother had also witnessed controlling behavior and rough housing and had pleaded with Michelle to break things off with him. Michelle asked her sister if she could babysit Alexis that night while she attended the Paramore concert that she had already purchased these tickets for. And that was one thing her sister had looked, you know, kind of in hindsight, had looked back and said, I told her not to go to the concert. Like she had already told me that things were rough between her and Jeremy. I told her not to go to the concert that night. And Michelle said, no, no, um, you know, I've been looking forward to this. I already have the tickets and I'm just going to go and break up with him after the concert. So that is what her plan was, according to her sister, who saw her earlier. According to Michelle's brother, Sean, uh, who attended the concert with the couple, Jeremy's attitude when they were at this Paramore show was kind of poor. He said that Jeremy seemed, quote, pissed off. So he asked if they could switch seats so that he could hang out with Michelle and have a good time with her. And, you know, it's his sister and they're all trying to have a good time at a concert. I can totally see how somebody acting like, you know, not in a good mood would bring down the whole yeah. the vibe, the vibe of the whole show. That would not be fun. So during the concert, though, Michelle was actually busy sending off a lot of different text messages to friends and family. And all these messages were kind of cryptic and weird. And like they didn't really have a lot of meaning, like direction or, you know, re- didn't seem like they had a lot of be- reason for her to be sending these. But one that she sent to her sister, who was um, babysitting her daughter, the message read, promise me one thing that Lexi will always be happy and have a good life. Um, and then there was another one um, that said, like, no matter what, Lexi will always be safe and loved. And these kinds of messages, of course, alarmed her sister because she already knew about Michelle's plans to break up with Jeremy. And of course, I can see why the sister would be like, okay, what's, you know, yeah. why are you saying things like this? Like what's going on? I can see how that would be very concerning. The last text message that Michelle sent uh, simply said, I'll be there soon. But she sent one final text to her brother, Scott, who was the um, sheriff's office deputy. And it just said, Lexi, never forget. So there was also a pretty weird outgoing text sent to Jeremy's phone from Michelle's phone at 9.28 p.m. This is something else I got from that review of this death investigation. And this is another thing that I didn't hear about at all. And I do think is kind of a strange piece of the case. But um, they did find on her phone at 9.28 p.m. that someone from Michelle's phone had sent to Jeremy's phone a message that said, Love you. Happy belated B-Day. Have the time of your life because it only happens once. You deserve it. So I'll talk a little bit more about why that is weird to me um, later in the episode. But it's definitely weird. They should have been together at the concert that time. So it is strange that she would have sent that message to him at that time. And they're all at the concert together. 
Right. Exactly. <laughs> that just, yeah, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, I'm not sure um, if that's where you were going with it. That never mind. Excuse yeah, my brain. No, okay, it is. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The only person who truly knows what happened after that is Jeremy Banks. Although he did confirm to police that Michelle broke up with him on the car ride home from the concert and that they had argued about it when they returned home. He stated that he had gone into the room while she was packing to ask her for one last kiss, which she rejected. So he allegedly went outside to sit on his motorcycle, and that's when she took her own life. This is his story. I'm not saying one thing about it. Right. But this is what you know. he has stated right. as as the truth, what he says happened. So another interesting piece of information that I learned about this case, um, and it was actually from, I think I just mentioned it a second ago, this uh, review of the death investigation that was written by the sheriff. I never really heard it like in the documentary. Maybe I just missed it. But there were actually two of the friends that they attended the concert with um, that night. Two of the friends went back to Jeremy's house and they police had confirmed that they had gotten there around 1040 p.m. And Michelle and Jeremy had already gotten back to the house by the time that these two friends arrived. So Jeremy allegedly asked his two friends to stay around for a while, quote, just in case anything happens. And so they did. They hung around. The friends told police that they stayed for like 30 to 45 minutes. The police, through their investigation, claim that they determined that the friends left the residence sometime between 11.10 and 11.25 p.m., which, of course, was when the police were coming to the house at 11.25 for um, after Jeremy reported the shooting. But to me, this is such an important fact that I think is not really talked about much because it's in a really close proximity to the time of when Michelle was killed. And it also conflicts with witness statements that they heard screams and gunshots between 1030 and 11 p.m. And we're going to get into more about that also, as well as a lot of other detail on this story after we give you guys a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week, the moms want to introduce you to our friends with Green Chef. For those of you not already familiar with Green Chef, we don't want to be too dramatic, but we may just be introducing you to the new love of your life. So you're welcome. Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company whose meal plans include paleo, vegan, vegetarian, keto, gluten-free, omnivore, and carnivore, which means there is literally something for everyone in your life. Green Chef thinks dinner should be planned around your life, not the other way around. Gone are the days of what's for dinner because with Green Chef, everything is handpicked and delivered right to your door, allowing your brain to take a much-needed break, at least when it comes to planning and preparing dinner. If you're like me, a meal isn't a meal without some sort of dressing or sauce. With Green Chef, their recipes include pre-made sauces, dressings, and spices, so you get more flavor in less time. We know that several of our listeners have dietary restrictions, and that's what makes Green Chef such a great fit for anyone. Green Chef makes it easy to maintain a specialty diet and enjoy exciting new options. The gluten-free spiced pork burrito bowl with black beans, corn, romaine, rice, and roasted red peppers is to die for. For $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us slash moms. Again, for $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us slash moms. And now back to the show. Several weeks passed, and after pressure from Michelle's family, the sheriff's department called them in for a meeting. They initially believed that they were going to be told that charges were being brought against Deputy Banks, but instead the deputies said they were sticking by their original idea that Michelle had died by suicide and that they believed she had been planning it based on the text messages that she sent to friends and family that night. 
Michelle's brothers and sisters refused to accept their answer and accused the department of letting things slide under the rug because Jeremy was a fellow officer. They demanded an outside investigation, but Lieutenant Charles Bradley called the notion that Jeremy murdered Michelle a, quote, conspiracy theory and insists that nobody at the sheriff's department had done anything wrong and that the findings of their investigation were accurate and that the investigation was done properly. The blogger behind the online blog called Behind the Blue Wall took notice of Michelle's story and wrote about it on the website. Behind the Blue Wall is a blog for bringing awareness and attention to cases of officer-involved domestic violence. Michelle's case was finally getting attention, and four months after her death, Sheriff Shore of the St. John's County Sheriff's Office finally asked for FDLE to come in and do a new investigation. So as this case involved an officer in the same department that was investigating this case, FDLE should have been called in immediately due to the conflict of interest in the case, not four months later. Rusty Rogers, a renowned special agent, was to lead the new investigation. And that's kind of the whole thing with Michelle's family. That's all they were trying to do, like get somebody outside of this office to tell us what really happened. You know, they weren't even I I mean, I know they were saying she didn't do this, but they just really wanted answers. They have this, you know, precious daughter and everything, and they just want to know exactly what happened. During FDLE's investigation into the case, a crime scene expert named Jerry Finley went over all those pieces of evidence that we mentioned earlier that were never analyzed the first time around. He made some interesting discoveries that didn't seem to line up with Jeremy's account of that night. There was no blood found on the gun at all, and the only DNA found on the weapon belonged to Michelle. Finley felt these were both odd findings and believed that there should have been at least some of Jeremy's DNA on the gun because it was his gun. It was his regular service weapon that he would have been handling regularly enough to have left traces of his own DNA on it. After analyzing the location of the shell casings inside the home, Finley believed that the gun had been fired with a left hand. Michelle was right-handed, but Jeremy was in fact left-handed. This also raises questions about why the gun was found next to Michelle's left hand, which would suggest that she had used her weaker hand to fire. As for the cut above her eyelid, Finley believed that she had been hit with the front of the weapon, which was the same size as her injury. It was also noted that Jeremy Banks had a trace amount of gun residue on his hands following the shooting, but explanations were given as to why he may have had it on him, like that he held her hand after she had supposedly shot herself, and there could have been some transfer of gun residue from that. Another theory is that he washed his hands sometime between the shooting and when his hands were finally swabbed at the scene. After analyzing all the evidence, his official report was that the scene was more consistent with a homicide. Another important discovery made by FDLE was that two women in the neighborhood heard screams on the night Michelle died. These are the two witnesses I mentioned a little earlier um, where I said there was a little bit of conflicting timeline. Um, So they were outside in their garage smoking cigarettes when they claimed to have heard a woman yell for help, followed by a gunshot, and then another yell for help, and then another gunshot, and after that it went silent. The women stated that it was sometime between 10.30 p.m. and 11 p.m., They heard sirens about 10 minutes later and assumed that help had already been called, and so they did not report what they had heard and said that nobody ever came looking to talk to them, which is what we talked about. Nobody canvassed the neighborhood or anything like that. Um, So this was actually crucial evidence in the case, and in order to be absolutely sure that the women were telling the truth, um, FDLE had them take polygraph tests, and they both passed. So I do have thoughts on that as well because um, even though like they're – they said that this was the time that, you know, it was between 10, 30 and 11. And basically with the polygraph test, if they really believe that's what time it was, well, then that's what time it wasn't, you know, they're right. going to pass the test when they have those questions asked. Like, if you know, you know, that if you think that was the time, then that's what you're, you're going to 
Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I get that. If you believe that that's the truth, it's not going to show up right. as false on a polygraph test. Whether you're right, right or wrong, you're, right. you believe it. So therefore, the polygraph test thinks you're telling the truth. Correct. So at least I guess we can glean from that that they did hear someone screaming and they heard the gunshots. And so I I think that that part of their story is absolutely true. I'm just playing devil's advocate on the time because it really does trip me up that they say they heard that um, all that commotion before when those two friends would have left um, Jeremy's house that night. So I get really tripped up on small details like that, especially when it's really close to like the time that somebody was hurt or, you know, killed, because I feel like everybody that was involved or there or even like there 10 minutes before should be, you know, questioned really heavily. Yeah. In light of the new developments uncovered covered by the FDLE investigation, Dr. Hoban officially changed the autopsy report to reflect the new theory of homicide. He handed over his findings to prosecutor R.J. Larizza, who asked Michelle's family if they could investigate the case even further. But Larizza asked that Dr. Hoban hold off on filing the new homicide finding and said that the case was going to take a different direction. Shortly after, Larizza asked to be recused from the case due to a conflict of interest, a move that left Michelle's family stunned and questioning why he would take the case in the first place if he knew there was a conflict. What was the exact conflict there that he worked with the police department? I was kind of confused. I guess so, yeah, because he was this prosecutor, but he, of course, I guess, worked very closely with the sheriff's department. And so, you know, of course, knew a lot of people in the, in the sheriff's department and you know, he could have felt that it was a conflict of interest. But I would say if that was the case, then he should have stepped away from it from day one and not even. Yeah. Well, how are you going to. should have called somebody else in yeah, right away. Yeah, a special prosecutor from outside the area. if Because everyone's, all the prosecutors are going to be working with the sheriff's department in some. Right. In some degree. A new medical examiner, Dr. Bulick, joined the investigation. After his review of the case file and all of the evidence, it was also his professional opinion that Michelle's death was a suicide, and he had a new theory for why she had the mystery injury above her eye. He proposed the idea that she had the gun upside down when she fired on herself, and the injury above her eye was caused by the tactical light on the gun when it recoiled after the shot was fired. The upside-down gun theory was tested in a controlled environment, and it presented several problems. For one thing, if the gun had been fired in that position, the slide would have cut Michelle's hand when it came back, and Michelle had no such injury to her hand. The other perplexing problem was the fact that Michelle would have had to have known some way to remove this gun from the retention holster in the first place, which was something that Dr. Bulick could not even do. That was so fascinating in this documentary. When they hand him the gun and they're like, uh, you know, he's kind of talking about, yeah, you know, she would have had to do this and this. And they're like, okay, great. Can you pull the gun from the holster? And he's like, okay. And you see this like intelligent, very intelligent man <laughs> struggling with this thing. And, you know, for a while, like long enough where it felt very awkward to even be watching this anymore. I was like, all right, this is, this is a lot. But just driving right. the point home that if you don't know how to do this, you're not gonna be able to do it. So after trying to remove this, like I was saying, he became very flustered and asked, quote, does anyone know how to get it out? And the answer is basically no, but nobody does. Yeah. <laughs> Although, OK, and like I said, I'm just playing devil's advocate here throughout this whole thing because it is a very controversial case. Right. But I know that that was something that they got really hung up on was like, oh, she would, you know, would she be able to get the gun out of a retention holster? Well, 
she was dating right. a cop. So I honestly, thing. I don't think there's any reason to think it would be weird if she did know how to get it out of a holster like that. Like if your boyfriend is a police officer, your family has police officers, your family has police officers. Exactly. I think it's very, very like plausible that she would know how to work that type of holster. That wasn't the crazy thing to me at all either. I agree. And, and why are we even saying it was in there? Like, sure, it should have been in there, but it's possible that it could have been It wasn't. Out. Right. Yeah. And so- I, I totally get that. Throughout the investigation, family of Michelle felt that Jeremy was being treated like a brother and was never treated as a possible suspect. Nobody in the sheriff's office appeared to be taking the investigation seriously. The two lead detectives working the case had only worked on three homicides between them, and a supervisor on the case had a previous disciplinary action against him for an inept investigation of another attempted murder. Just like Lenny Kravitz, I want to get away. I want to fly away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while I'm stuck on the ground for now, I can settle for a new kind of journey, all with a fun mobile game. Step into the enchanting world of June Parker with June's Journey, where a spectacular adventure awaits you. And the best part? No plane tickets needed. Bid farewell to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a realm where intrigue dances with elegance, all thanks to the drama-filled escapades of our charming heroine, June Parker. Whether you crave a captivating mystery or simply wish to escape the humdrum of daily life, June's journey is your portal to excitement. Join June on her quest to uncover hidden family secrets and navigate the tangled web surrounding her sister's demise. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and dive into a world where each corner holds a new clue and every twist leaves you on the edge of your seat. But hold on to your pearls because June's Journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm knee-deep in the fifth chapter, and each section is really more delightful than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect oozes sophistication and refinement. So don't hesitate any longer. Step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure unfold. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Want to get away? Yeah, I do too. But since that's not really on the agenda anytime soon, I'll have to settle for a different kind of journey. And you can too, all with a fun mobile game. June's Journey allows you to enter the realm of June Parker, where an extraordinary adventure awaits. Best of all, no plane tickets needed. Say goodbye to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a world where intrigue meets elegance, courtesy of the drama-filled exploits of June Parker. Whether you're in need of a riveting mystery or simply yearning to escape the monotony of everyday life, June's journey is your gateway to excitement. Follow June as she unravels hidden family secrets and navigates the intricate web surrounding her sister's demise. It's sort of like an upscale soiree minus the dull weather discussions, although we secretly enjoy those too. But hold on to your pearls as June's journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm deep in the fifth chapter with each section proving more enjoyable than the last. From the awe-inspiring scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect of June's journey exudes sophistication and refinement. Don't hesitate any longer. Step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure commence. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Another example of Jeremy's privilege was that just 12 days after the shooting, he gained access to the confidential investigative file on the case and read it without permission. He admitted it to a detective in an interview, but she didn't even act like it was a big deal and never challenged him about it. And he he just casually said, I know I probably shouldn't have, but I just wanted to know what went down on the other side. Immediately, there should have been some kind of action taken against him for doing that. Yeah. I felt like like that was super upsetting just to see that lady like laughing it off like, oh, OK, like no big deal. Like, you know, he 
That whole it's, interview was bizarre when he was like, well, yeah. this is an echoey room. She's like, ah, it's echoey. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. Handle yourself professionally. Like, this is a big deal. And like, okay, you might not think he's guilty and you might think this whole thing is crazy, but like, there are cameras in there. You should know there are cameras in there. Can't yeah. you just, I don't know. It reminded me like, this is back to um, the Michael Peterson case. Remember in the staircase whenever they're like redoing the shots and there's blood that squirts up and you see that one person that's like an investigator do this like happy happy joy joy dance that they were finally able to replicate and you're like dear lord woman you're on camera like can you not hold it together for this camera i had a lot of thoughts on that the whole interview just upset me yeah i agree Jeremy, who was 23 at the time of Michelle's death, had been on the force for almost four years. He had been somewhat of a punk kid, but coming from a law enforcement family, it seemed like the most logical career path for him as well. During his short time as a deputy, he had already been reprimanded for making obscene gestures while in uniform, and he had a longstanding history of failing to secure his service weapon and other guns that he owned, despite it being department policy that all firearms were secured at all times. He openly admitted that he would often take off his duty belt after work and just throw it on the floor, which, yeah, probably not a great place for your duty belt. No. Um, another, yeah, another officer, Deputy Plot, who we mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, he had actually lived with Jeremy as a roommate for a short time. And he did recall that Jeremy had an uncontrollable temper and also that he would just leave guns all over the place. And he would even tell him, like, whenever he had his nieces and nephews and, and such coming over, like, you got to put your guns away, dude. Like, you can't have these just laying all over the place. Yeah. So after a three-month review, Prosecutor Brad King, who had been appointed by Governor Rick Scott, called the O'Connell family into the courthouse where he stated that there was no sufficient evidence that a murder had been committed and that they had no intention of bringing charges on Deputy Banks. Michelle's brother, Scott, became furious and lashed out at deputies, which led to him being fired from his job at the sheriff's department. Brad King declared the case closed, and Michelle's death officially remained a suicide. Journalists from the New York Times began their own investigation into the way police agencies handled cases of domestic violence when it involves one of their own officers. They analyzed the information they collected and learned that the police are rarely held accountable or prosecuted in these situations. Dottie Davis, a former officer who had escaped from an abusive relationship with another officer, has dedicated her career to speaking with agencies around the country about their policies regarding officer-involved domestic violence cases. She explained the reasons why victims are hesitant to call for help when their abuser is the police. The New York Times chose 61 police departments that had at least 1,000 officers working for them and asked them to tell how they handled cases of police domestic violence. By far, the most common initial reaction was that they had no idea what their own department's policies were, and they only found one agency that had fully implemented the recommended policies and safeguards. The Times then asked former New York City Police Commander Vernon Gebberth to look over the results of the investigation and give his opinion. And I love this guy. I don't know what it was about him. He reminded me of my father, Aww. I think, a little bit. Whenever I know. So he was really cool and I really liked him. Um, so he had more than enough experience in the field and specifically in homicide investigations as he had already investigated or assisted in investigating over 8,000 homicides in his career. According to him, every death investigation should be treated as a homicide until it's proven differently, and he believes that that was not what happened in the case of Michelle O'Connell's death. He further went on to explain that the investigation was tainted from the moment Jeremy Banks dialed 911 and reported her death as a suicide. From that moment on, the opinions of fellow officers were clouded, and they acted upon the report of a suicide and never entertained any other possibility. Another red flag, according to Gebberth, was the fact that Jeremy was not immediately removed from the scene and taken into the station for an interview. 
He was allowed to hang around outside talking to friends and coworkers before his interview, which took place in the back of a police car. An off-duty officer was also present for the interview, which is a big no-no when it comes to homicide investigations. Um, this this expert, um, Mr. Gebberth, said that there should only ever be the suspect in the interviewer present in these types of interviews. And he he actually said that there is absolutely no reason why anyone else should be sitting in on an interview. Definitely not an off-duty officer. Yeah. And, I mean, you think of, I don't know, like there's cases when kids are being interviewed and stuff and their parents not even in the room. And this guy is sitting here with a you know, with a fellow officer. It was just weird. Despite the errors in the investigation, the sheriff's office insisted that they had done a thorough enough job and that their outcome was correct. They further went on to accuse Rusty Rogers, head of the FDLE investigation, of misconduct, citing reckless tactics and using false and leading information and coaching witnesses. Sheriff Shore went to great lengths to attempt to discredit the two neighbors who heard Michelle screaming for help that night by calling them potheads and saying they couldn't even recall if they had gotten high that high that night and alleging that their stories were based not in the truth, uh, despite the polygraph test showing otherwise. As a result, Rusty Rogers was put on paid leave while FDLE had a prosecutor investigate. A years-long war between Sheriff Shore and Rusty Rogers ensued. Jeremy Banks tried to sue Rogers for violating his rights during the investigation, but the case was dismissed by Judge Byron Davis. Three years after Michelle's death, Sheriff Shore gathered up the members of his department for an annual meeting at a resort hotel. This event turned into a show of support for Jeremy Banks and an announcement that Michelle's brother, Scott O'Connell, was going to be returning to work for the St. John's County Sheriff's Office. Jeremy Banks had already returned to the force after one year of paid leave. In January of 2016, nearly six years after her death, Michelle's body was exhumed and another autopsy was performed by Dr. Bill Anderson, a forensic pathologist based in Orlando. His findings dropped a bombshell on the investigation. His autopsy revealed a fractured mandible, which is your jawbone, that would have been caused by blunt force trauma, which would suggest that Michelle had been in a physical altercation prior to her death. This fracture, along with the mystery injury above her eye, could suggest that someone had physically attacked Michelle in the moments leading up to the shooting. Due to the new questions surrounding the case, Governor Scott asked Orange County State uh, Attorney Jeff Ashton, who would might sound that name might sound familiar because he did work on the Casey Anthony case. Once again, he returned with the opinion that there was just simply not enough evidence to prosecute the case. Michelle's family continues to fight for justice in what they believe is a horrifying case of an officer-involved domestic violence that turned deadly. They refuse to give up on finding the missing piece of evidence that would prove that Michelle did not take her own life that night. So, you know, that's kind of where the story ends. There's a little bit more, but I just feel like I have so many unanswered questions, like my personal questions about this case. I mentioned in the beginning that this is one of the ones that, like, fascinates me and, like, I wish I had answers to certain aspects of it. And then, of course, going back to that weird text that we talked about at 928, the one that was like, love you, like, have a happy belated birthday. Um, they were together at the concert at that time. And so I've always wondered, like, why would she send him that message? And then especially it seems odd coming from her if she knew that she was going to be breaking up with him. Right. That night, you know, it's weird to send a text message to somebody that you're at a concert with anyway. But... <laughs> It's I think it's even stranger that that would those would be the words. And it just makes me wonder if some if a person other than Michelle could have sent the text. There are so many details of this case, and we hope we hit all the most important ones. Mandy did a great job researching this one. But the story is truly fascinating, and we will definitely link resources in our show notes. Um, we'll 
link all of our sources. If you haven't seen this Frontline PBS special, it's definitely worth watching. It's super intriguing, and there's just a ton of information. There's so much in audio that you can not quite get enough of. Like, There's so much in the video, I feel like, in some of the interviews with um, the police interviews that were really, really fascinating. There's also a Facebook page set up in Michelle's memory where the family shares relevant articles and stories and pictures of Michelle. That page is called Justice for Michelle O'Connell. Michelle's mother, Patty, is raising her granddaughter, Alexis, and the two of them still struggle in their lives without Michelle. In 2016, Alexis wrote a poem about her mom, and Mandy is a jerk for making me read this section. Sorry. (laughs) So it's really sweet, though. Um, She wrote, My mom loved turtles. Me and my mom loved to eat ice cream and pizza. We loved to go to SeaWorld. We loved to go fishing. We loved to go to the beach. We loved sunflowers. We loved to clean. She worked three jobs. She loved me. She worked even at night. Our favorite game was Mousetrap. When I was in school, she got me a dog. So from the words of kids, I don't know. You can learn a lot about Michelle somebody. seemed like a great a mom. Wonderful mom. Yeah. yeah. And so however it happened, whatever happened, obviously we hope that her family has peace in all of this and that her daughter um, continues to grow up and know what an amazing mom she had. So uh, obviously that was a very upsetting case. And we have a few coming up in the next few weeks. We have people helping us with a few cases and we're stringing in some non-murdery cases and some one I'm really excited about. And I think you know which one it is, but uh, that's really kind of crazy and out there. So we're trying to mix up our cases so we don't bum you out every week. But we don't want to bum you out every week. Before we do our last thing before we go, we had a lovely listener write to us. um, And her name is Brooklyn. And she asked us to please, please, please Actually, she didn't say that many places. She just did one, but I like to be dramatic. Um, To wish her mom, Dana, from Fayetteville, Arkansas, a happy birthday. So, happy Happy birthday, birthday, Dana. Happy birthday, yeah. And this episode should be out on your actual birthday. So, happy birthday. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Uh, If you want to check out our Patreon page, we are... The votes are coming in for the documentary that we're doing this month. I think it's going to be Tall Hot Blonde, which is one of my favorite documentaries. And it's so crazy, even though it's super cheesy in parts. Um, but I love it, love it, love it. It's like catfishing. Amazing. Crazy. It's perfect. Have you seen it? I can't wait. I think I have. It's been out for a while. I think I have. It's been a while. So we'll have that up on Patreon, and you can find that at patreon.com slash Podcast. It will be up before the 1st. It will probably be up the 30th, but it will be up before the 1st. And so now, last thing before we go, Mandy, Kathy W., very funny and lovely listener in our Facebook group, asked, what three things would you bring to a desert island? We're assuming our families there are kids. Although, would you bring them? I don't know. Maybe depending on the day. Kidding. We love them. <laughs> don't at me about saying I wouldn't pick my kids. Of course you bring your of children. Um, so are, can, can these be – do they have to be practical things or can I bring like in my dream fantasy Listen, things? there's like seven words here so you can do whatever the heck you want to. I don't care. Do it. <laughs> well, I want to bring my phone. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not going to have electricity. Right? I know. Well, I said, does it have okay, to be fine. practical or can it can it be my fairy tale? Okay, fairy tale. Bring your like, phone. Okay. You have free internet. <laughs> <laughs> Wi-Fi. Yeah. Okay. So, exactly. So, if, if we're not being realistic, yeah, I'm going to bring my phone and um, probably like deodorant because I don't want to be, I don't want to be stranded on, a, on an island 
like smelly. I can't believe you went from a phone to deodorant like that. That that is quite a jump there. I would not bring anything practical with me. I'm telling you, I just want to smell good. I want to have my phone. What about sentimental? And- would you bring sentimental? <laughs> um, to a desert island. You're on a desert island. You have nothing else, Mandy. I'm looking at this like, what would I bring? I sh- I guess it's not the same as what would you bring if your house was burning down. That that's different. Yeah. Okay, desert island. Okay, yeah. I'm not playing this game right. Go ahead. What's your third thing? I don't know. Well, that was boring. <laughs> I don't know. I... <laughs> okay. All right. You jump in at any time if you come up with your third one. My f- oh, oh, I would ahead. bring a couple of chickens. To eat? <laughs> well, yeah, to eat their eggs. And then then I would have food. It's like a multi. And I would have a pet to love. And then I would have food. I would have everything. <laughs> that is the saddest thing I've ever heard. Your family will already be there. You'll have something to love, Mandy. Okay. <laughs> So I'm going to go number one phone because that was genius because I still want to be able to communicate with all the people not on an island. This is a fantasy. So the next thing I'm going to bring is just an all-you-can-eat buffet of all the food that I like. That is (laughs) – you brought deodorant. I don't care if I stink. Nobody will be around me if I stink. So then I can eat more food. What would another thing be? Um, I don't know. I I might not need anything else. I just want food. Oh, I want like a a really nice bed. I just want to sleep. Yeah. You didn't bring it on yours. I'm sorry. It's over. Too bad. You're going to be smelling nice while sleeping in the branches. It's going to be terrible. (laughs) So uh, the other, the next one. So thank you, Kathy W. for that one. The next one that I think is so great and made me laugh. uh, V, another very lovely listener and who's so, so sweet and one of my favorite people. And Kathy is too. So nobody be offended here. Um, she wrote, would you trade lives for one day? Mandy, I cannot wait to hear you answer this. <laughs> Do you get to sleep while I'm being you? I don't know. Because <laughs> if that, then yes, I would. I would trade lives with you for a day. I think that's. I don't really think it would be that different than my life, though. So. That's what I'm thinking, too. I'm like, I don't think people realize how <laughs> we're always stressed out on the same days writing each other. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> crazy times. So, yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I would trade lives with you for a day just to see. I think I just to see, like, is it just this bad everywhere or is it just this bad at my house? Like, is all life this crazy and wild and a mess? Do you get to like, okay, so do you have, do you get to like be me for a day or do you just get to live my life I'm going to call this a body swap because again, I have no more information than you have for these questions. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking Lindsay Lohan, like not, yeah, parent trapping. We're like parent trapping each other. Like you're trapped. No, that's Freaky Friday. Oh, Freaky Friday. Yeah, we're Freaky Friday. What about Freaky Friday okay. in the Minocos with uh, Lindsay Lohan and her new dance moves, which is my, <laughs> you can put that on any GIF, any comment, and I just think it's the funniest thing in the world. Okay, so we're Freaky Fridaying each other, and you are me, and I am you. Okay, so yeah, I would do it. So all that, and that's all you came up with. <laughs> It's been a long time. I went through a lot of pop culture references, terrible movies, got it wrong again. I just, well, I I just was letting you, I was letting you just Think of how easy it would be for you to wash your own hair. My hair is so short, Mandy. It would take off seconds of your life. (laughs) 
Oh, I'd have to hang out with chickens, so I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, they're great and all, but <laughs> we'll see. All right. Well, this was very disappointing. I'm sorry, V, that we could not do your question more justice, but we really are basically the same person when it comes down to it. So, um, yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Great. Don't leave me hanging there, boo. All right. <laughs> <laughs> It's 11, 11. It's 11, hey, 11. Cool. You know what that means? It means. That means all the, all the numbers on the clock. Yeah. <laughs> if we wait 12 hours, it'll happen again. All right. <laughs> Have a great week. Bye, Bye, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.